Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Welcome to the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regard it as our task to brush history against the grain. I am one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me as always is your 2021 NL Western Division champion, Chris Padgett. How's it going, Chris? Good, but I'd prefer you now refer to me simply as Cy Young. All-time, an all-timer, right? Yeah, I've become so immersed now in baseball. You know, it became a tradition for us in the summer episodes, right, to to begin uh, each episode updating our listeners on the uh, the progress of our hometown ball club, the San Francisco Giants. Uh, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it to you, my friend, to have the uh, pleasure of doing that this time. Well, I, I think I, I alluded to it. You know, you pitched a great game in the closer and and, and finished things out, and uh, we won we won the division. So heading into fall ball playoffs, the the leaves are falling, the weather is cooling, and our team is in the playoffs. Uh, so it'll be you know another month of just deep deep stress and anxiety as we uh, go through this this next crucible of a baseball season. You know, I think you're being far too modest, actually, because by winning 107 games, you and I and the Giants set an all-time franchise record that goes back 130 years plus. And in addition, we did it at the expense of the Los Angeles Dodgers. It was was doubly sweet, doubly sweet. But I mean, speaking of speaking of milestones, this is our episode fifty, and uh, with our episode fifty, you might have noticed we've got a new theme song, uh, which was composed by a very good friend of mine, one of my oldest friends, Jesse DiCarlo. And I just want to uh, thank Jesse for that awesome theme, which will now be our regular theme. And uh, if you want to check out his stuff, go to jessedecarlo.com, D-E-C-A-R-L-O, because he is a, a great musician, composer producer, uh, everything under the sun having to do with music. And uh, yeah, we were, we're loving this this new theme. Yeah, that new theme is the equivalent of a Kevin Gosman perfectly placed split-fingered <laughs> fastball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I wasn't ready to leave baseball. But yeah, no, Jesse, <laughs> huzzahs for Jesse. You know, we were getting letters from the corporate lawyers suggesting mm-hmm. that we kept using the Tribe Called Quest intro that there would be some, what, I don't know, legal ramifications or something. And I couldn't stand to see you carted off to, to prison, Josh. Well, they, they wanted a cut of that, that hag cash, you know, that's been flowing in. So, yeah, we, we, we made a choice to go with a, uh, a, a unique personal intro instead of borrowing from others. And uh, I think we're all better for it. That's right. And besides, you know, we'd already switched to cryptocurrency. They would have never gotten their hands on it. But yeah, I think better safe than sorry. And I love what Jesse's done. So so again, Jesse, um, 
Thank you so much. Well, I got to take part in one of my favorite pastimes. I think it was maybe last week or the week before. It's, it's been a while since we recorded, but in the last couple of weeks, and that is seeing something online and then sending it to you in order to provoke uh, outrage. I, I think I, I kind of see like the whole, right? We got to get you mad. And then when you get, when you're mad, then we get some real good stuff out of you. So, and this was a, this was a tweet by one of our favorites, William Hoagland. And uh, it was just a tweet of a complete exasperation. And what it linked to was a review in the New York times of a couple new history books. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the, the Hulk, by the way, because just this last weekend, I, I promised my grandson that for Halloween, I would come, uh, as the Hulk. Oh no! And I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, yeah. All it's really going to that's one of one of his favorite characters. So all it's really going to take is some, uh, some some green body paint because I think uh, I'll supply the 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 ver- verisimilitude. I think the, <laughs> yeah. the real anger <laughs> right. that naturally flows through me. And yeah, you're right because what I'll call your. Um, your laser-guided, heat-seeking text messages <laughs> <laughs> never fail. I was probably sitting there, Josh, what, maybe, you know, in repose, doing a bit of crocheting with some lovely yarn. Yep, maybe your, your uh, tea with honey next to you. Yep. Some honey tea, maybe playing some, you know, some show tunes on the hi-fi, you know, just in, in my own bliss. And, uh, and then it came, and... And boy, uh, I tell you, I'm still running hot uh, because it's this kind of thing that really fires what I guess you would say the creative juices, you know. Uh, And I think next to baseball, maybe our our favorite sport is the, uh, you know, historian drama. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Historian drama, because for all our sort of public, uh, I guess, identity, you know, as historians, as sort of tweed wearing you know, pipe smoking, mm-hmm. right? You know, rich leather bound volumes lining the <laughs> shelves. That, that really, it's a lot more like WrestleMania when you get some historians loose. You know, they start wild and reviewing each other's books. And and boy, I tell you, it's it, it's a slugfest. And and in this instance, uh, the tweet uh, string was started by one uh, one of our faves, a guy who we've come to really appreciate. Uh, for his work and including his his Twitter posts, uh, and that's a guy named William Hoagland, who's a, a U.S. historian uh, who writes on the uh, sort of the era of the American Revolution. Uh, and Hoagland had uh, posted the original tweet regarding a, a New York Times book review, uh, and the uh, tweet that he posted was entitled "Snooze Arama." <laughs> Snoozerama. I, I couldn't remember the, the initial one. Yeah, that rings a bell. So I knew I knew we were going to like this one, right? Yep. And and as you as you knew as well, it was bound to lead me down the uh, the rabbit hole into a very you know sort of uh, surrealistic place known as as history land, uh, because the article, the Times article that Hoagland was uh, was posting, was a book review uh, entitled. Two of America's leading historians look at the nation's founding once again. <laughs> uh, to which yeah. Hoagland said, uh, in, you know, in, in response to the, uh, the once again, in response to which Hoagland said, once again, no kidding. And that's where we <laughs> supply the laugh track. Yep. Uh, and that'll become clear in just a second. 
but the books, okay, so the books dealing with uh, the uh, era of the American Revolution and the Constitution, written by uh, Joseph Ellis and Gordon Wood, respectively, Ellis's book entitled The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, uh, while Gordon Wood's book, A Power in Liberty, Constitutionalism in the American Revolution. Now, uh, okay, so these are two uh, well-known historians. Joseph Ellis has uh, published uh, any number of books on the era, popular selling uh, books, while Gordon Wood, uh, perhaps not quite as successful in what I call the popular history market, but nevertheless, uh, a prolific author whose many, many works on this uh, this particular period, this particular subject, have uh, sort of anointed him, if you will, as you know, sort of one of the deans of American Revolutionary Era history. So, yeah, a couple of couple of big names in the game, you might say. So, the book review, written by a fellow named Richard Stengel, we'll come back to him a little bit later, begins with the following. I'm just going to read it to you, if you'll in, indulge me here, Josh. There was nothing inevitable about the creation of the United States. The United States, singular, that is, Mm -hmm. a continental nation state with a central government rather than these United States, plural, a collection of small, quarrelsome, quasi-republics connected by a weak treaty of friendship. In fact, the path to the nation as we know it, with a powerful executive a representative legislature, an independent judiciary, was highly implausible. For the 13 states at the time of the revolution, many nations that had their own currencies, their own foreign policies, their own navies, the quest for independence was not just freedom from an imperial Britain, but independence from one another. America could have very easily looked like a bigger more dysfunctional European Union. All right, now that was the uh, the opening uh, paragraph in the uh, the book review, and I suppose it all sounds inspiring enough, except that I would say encoded in it, as we have come to understand it, uh, is the same implotment of U.S. history that I would argue is gotten us into quite a bit of trouble in recent years. The same employment of U.S. history that we tend to call the romantic storytelling form of U.S. history. In other words, it sets up almost like a hero's journey, doesn't it, Josh? A nation that wasn't really supposed to be a nation overcomes all its many divisions to become exactly that nation yeah. that ultimately sort of, you know, is coronated in the triumphal march of history or something. Well, and, and you know, the idea that if we had become something like the European Union, <laughs> that's some kind of, you know, uh, you know, worst case scenario. Yeah, is that a bad thing? I don't know. Famously don't... Yeah, poor and in, in, uh, undeveloped European Union. Right. So, okay. So the uh, author of the piece, the review, is is alerting us to the fact uh, that this is very much how these two books he's reviewing are going to situate themselves in that familiar implotment of U.S. history. We sometimes call it in, in strictly historiographical terms, we call it the consensus 
school of U.S. history because, as the name would suggest, over time, it has become more or less the ruling paradigm or, as we've named our episode today, episteme, which we will endeavor to explain here in a bit, uh, has become the, the ruling explanation, if you will, for understanding the meaning of the American story. In these two masterly works, the great historians of America's revolutionary era, Gordon S. Wood and Joseph, Joseph J. Ellis, show how this experiment in Republican self-government almost didn't happen. So again, there's more of the potboiler, right? You know, mm -hmm. the, the building tension, the rising drama that will ultimately lead, as we know, in the consensus view of things to the triumphal coronation, as I say, of the United States as the great nation par excellence. But like every hero's journey story, there has to be what along the way the hero has to suffer setback. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, at the hands usually of some, you know, villainous opposition. You know, maybe maybe that opposition comes from within the complicated psyche of the hero himself. But in the end, how do we know it's going to turn out? Because it's, I mean, the, the ending is written into the into the very story, right? The, the assumption <laughs> of where we're trying to get is, is built into it. Like, you know, the hero's journey assumes that there's a starting point and an ending point. And we, we've read enough of these to know that the hero is going to get to that ending point, And that will be the great culmination of the, of this story. So it, it's, it's so encoded in the entire thing that, you know, you don't go to, a, you don't read a hero's story. You don't watch a hero's journey to be surprised basically at this point, right? We know, we know how these things end. They right. end exactly as they're supposed to end. Right. With a, with a kind of triumph, right? Otherwise it would be not implotted as a romance, but as so say a tragedy, Right. But that's not how the consensus view of the U.S. history story is ever implotted, is it? Right. Well, I just was going to add, you know, because the, the reviewer says right at the beginning, there's nothing inevitable, inevitable about this, but then goes on to tell a story that's all about the inevitability uh, of this end. Right. <laughs> yes, this this exactly. is the, the direction we're going. So what, what other direction could we go once that's that's uh, put in place? Yeah, that's a great point. In fact, some would say, I think, that it was inevitable Joseph Ellis and Gordon Wood would write these books. Um <laughs> uh, Okay, but back to the tortured psyche uh, that the hero must overcome, that is that self-contradiction. Continuing on, the review says, but Ellis and Wood are not triumphalist about the Constitution. They each underscore that the signers failed to deal with some awfully big problems. They both assert, assert that the deepest flaw was the failure to purge the new nation of the evil of slavery. And that error, more than any other, betrayed the values on which America was founded. Now, I was tempted in the beginning, Josh, to give you a multiple choice question here to see how well you know your partner in podcast and his view on such statements as betrayed the values on which America was founded. It's, but, it's just an error, Chris. They just made an error. They, tripped, and, they tripped and added slavery to the Constitution. Don't you understand that? Yeah. Well, and besides, if I gave you a quiz, I don't know. We're trying to get away from that sort of thing in education. That's, these that's days, right, yeah. right. Okay. So, um, yeah. But you're right. Betrayed the values on which America was founded. In my notes, I wrote capital letter W, capital T, capital F, question mark, question mark. <laughs> Uh, this is a family program, so mm -hmm. I won't say it out. 
Because here's the thing. Slavery betrayed the values on which America was founded. Josh, can we talk? I think it's time. Is it? <laughs> I feel like our, that's what we're here to do. Yes. So in yes. our fifth, thank you. In our fifty-episode <laughs> therapy session, I think it's time we come clean. You know, well, you know, we've done it from the first episode. Why change now? Let me say this: slavery, with all due respect to Messrs. Wood and Ellis and uh, our gentleman reviewer here, slavery was a value upon which America mm-hmm. was founded. Cue the music. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. I just had this conversation in a, uh, this discussion in a class. I was talking about the kind of the enlightenment and some of the, we'll just say the limitations of the enlightenment. I, you know, the question I asked was, you know, given who these people were that came up with a lot of these ideas and, and what their actual, you know, lives were like using Jefferson as, as our prime example, of course. But, um, you know, does that undermine the, the power of some of these ideas and the, the usual answer I get, you know, when I ask that question is, well, yeah, the guys were flawed, but the ideals are important still because they can become the root from which something better grows. And what I, what I finally responded was, well, why do we see the ideals as the real thing and the actual actions as something that's just an inconvenient thing? Like, why are the ideals seen as the, as the you know, the structure for, for this, in, this emergent thing, as opposed to the actual structure that existed when, when these things came into play? Right. right? Um, the foundation is not, the foundation is not the ideals. The foundation is the actual society that exists at, at that time. So it's just it's yeah. it's so frustrating to keep seeing that idea that the ideals were, were pure um, and uh, and therefore they were they were, uh, you know, there was an error when they went against them or something like that. It, yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, I, I think in the therapy session known as our podcast, we'd say that's some strange sort of disassociative behavior, right? Yeah. In other words, you're projecting one reality while living another or something. And the lived reality in this case, of course, was slavery because slavery had been a part of the colonial foundation, you know, from the very beginning. Uh, in other words, it was it was written into the fabric of the 13 colonies and then would subsequently be uh, written over into the new deed known as the United, the new deed of ownership, you know, called the United States of America in the uh, the title document known as the Constitution. Uh, and so that is part of, I think, the the fundamental dishonesty of the consensus school. Uh, keep in mind, historians like Wood and Ellis really came of age in, in the early Cold War years after World mm-hmm. War II, when it was incumbent in all areas of public life, including higher education, where, by the way, I'm old enough to remember having to sign a loyalty oath to be a teaching assistant for the University of California. Uh, and that was in the 80s. It was incumbent upon everyone in public life to demonstrate what their fundamental loyalty and commitment to the United States vis-a-vis, you know, as the defender of the free world vis-a-vis the communist threat of Soviet Russia uh, and by turns communist China. And so universities and the education system were certainly within that, uh, you know, sort of patriotic flow. And it's perhaps not terribly surprising that a lot of the leading histories, even histories written about the colonial era, like the revolution and the Constitution, uh, that these histories in their own way reflected that kind of, uh, you know, germinal seed of liberty idea 
that we were always the defender of the free world mm-hmm. uh, and thus had come by our position honestly and historically, you know, in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. In other words, going back into the DNA of the country to find that kind of ancestral claim, you know, to being that entity. But, you know, of course, the the really extraordinarily inconvenient fact, as we know, was that if you go back into that DNA and you don't have to go all that far, what are you going to find there? You're going to find there the institution of chattel slavery staring you right in the face. Uh, and not only that, but it was an institution which many of these so-called founding fathers, the kind of guys that Wood and Ellis and their crowd like to, you know, to celebrate in near mythic terms, uh, that they themselves were often, you know, eyeball deep uh, in the investment of American uh, slave owning. And, you know, we've talked about that from time to time. So I'll trust that our listeners are none too shocked uh, to hear it again. So, yeah. Rather than it being a value that was somehow at odds, or, or, or how about even calling it a value? As you suggest, it was a behavior. It was a yeah. way of life, okay? Now, here's what he has to say going on in the review. Both Wood and Ellis write that the revolution galvanized opposition to slavery, not only in the North, but in Virginia as well. Wood notes that the first anti-slavery convention in world history met in Philadelphia in 1775. After the war, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island passed laws eliminating the slave trade. The framers knew how hypocritical their toleration of slavery looked after talking for years about breaking free from their bondage to England. And I think at that point in our text exchange, Josh, all I could text you was, I'm getting mad with the little orange faced emoji <laughs> that represents anger. That emoji, uh, when you click on the emoji tab, that that picture comes up first, I believe, at this point, right? <laughs> it's my screenshot. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, this idea and this is the other thing these uh, these jokers always do, you know, is they say, well, sure, we can't. You know, magnanimous. It's very magnanimous of them to say, well, we can't deny there was slavery. Mm. You know, so what we're going to do is suggest that it was a, a kind of value, an aberrant value that was really at odds with the real meaning of what was happening. And that, you know, sure enough, they were taking action, you know, to remedy that, right? You know, and yeah. having these various meetings and societies that they point out you know, that were tending toward, you know, uh, abolition of the slave trade or some other diminution of, of slavery. But, but you know, the thing about that is, <laughs> Josh, and by the way, Gordon Wood was one of those who jumped in on the initial uh, critique of the 1619 project, as we've also discussed on the show, uh, and took, ex- you know, exception in particular to Nicole Hannah-Jones's you know, comment that the American Revolution was fought, you know, in part to defend the interests of slave owners, which is basically, to borrow the words of of Jefferson, self-evident, but not to these guys, you know, not to these historians who take umbrage at this idea. You know, never mind that slavery would survive the American Revolution and the Constitution. In fact, not only survive, but but flourish, right? Mm -hmm. That is, the number of enslaved people 
in the United States from the, uh, you know, from the early national period up to the time of the Civil War, you know, basically quadrupled. And as a territorial institution spread across a vast area of the North American uh, continent. So much more expansive, much more intensive, much more profitable in every way was American slavery, you know, four score and seven years after the American Revolution than it had been even at the time of the revolution. But that you would think that would leave these these historians red faced, you know, in trying to somehow argue that, well, it was a, a flaw, <laughs> you know, a character flaw, but that it was, uh, you know, ultimately they were remedying it with plans, you know, for its uh, its abolition. Um, well, and, and the reviewer certainly says none of them were proud of it. Mm-hmm. None, None of them, them were proud of. Can you believe that, Josh? I tell you who wasn't proud of slavery. Those who were enslaved. Yeah. Who are, who are just not part of the conversation at all, right? That those lives don't, no, don't get considered at all in these stories? No. No, they weren't. So he finishes up by saying, yes, there may be faults in our software, but the Constitution also contains a built-in self-correcting mechanism. It can be amended. The union can be made more perfect. Mm-hmm. And if I recall correctly, Josh, it took 700,000 deaths, Americans slaughtering Americans on American soil to remedy that little software flaw. Yeah. It, and basically the disenfranchisement of all the people who would have opposed it in the first place, right? Um, right? Because those, those amendments don't get passed if you have uh, all the Southern representatives in in, in Congress at that time, isn't that right? right. So it just, it's such an extreme situation to remedy this thing that he's, and, and it kind of reminds me of this, the idea that's often promoted that, well, yeah, they didn't like slavery, but they, they thought it would just die out on its own. Right. Isn't that, isn't that some a, an right. idea that's often presented? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. if, if that's your view of this thing that I don't like it, but I'm just going to let it, you know, go out on its own, then you're not really opposed to it. You don't really care about it all that much. Right. You're not willing to lift a finger to do it. And you assume, you know, and this gets to stuff we've talked about before, that history will solve our problems. History will judge these things. And therefore, it's not incumbent upon us as humans living at a moment, dealing with a situation to actually deal with that situation anyway. Right? Let the inevitability of history solve our flaws is not a great way to approach these massive issues of, of human rights and, and politics and all these sorts of things. Well, no, it isn't. And as Richard Stengel, the reviewer, points out, though, you know, who's perfect, right? They weren't proud of it. Josh, I think you're being a little, uh, I don't know, a little harsh maybe, <laughs> you know, on these slave owners. Um, well, look, OK, uh, these are just some of the, the, you know, the sort of shop worn tropes that are, you know, so emblematic of the consensus what I'll call the Cold War consensus view of early American history. Slavery was something uh, that was a little, uh, well, a little embarrassing, sure. Although they never actually quite point out it wasn't embarrassing to those folks at the time who were invested. It really wasn't. Uh, Jefferson was looking for ways to expand and increase the profitability of his slave owning, even as he gave public utterances to the contrary. Um, but that your point is an excellent one that somehow it all worked out in the end, because that's the, where the direction of this triumphal romantically implauded story of us history, uh, was going. 
Well, okay, now back to our friend William Hoagland, whose Twitter post alerted us to this car wreck. I knew from the start I was going to like what he had to say, you know, when he said, once again, no kidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jared Hardest was someone who followed up on his tweet, said, these two guys have written the same book over and over again for 30 years and still get reviewed <laughs> in the Times. Can't tell if I'm more annoyed or frustrated by it. Charles Gonzalez tweeted, what? More books on our founding? Yes, thank God, because no nation has a shorter memory than this one. And I, for one, am looking forward to Wood's valedictory. I've reached the age, 67, when I realized that, yes, wisdom and perspective grow with age and experience. And uh, I'm going to interpret that as being heavy with irony here. Mm -hmm. Okay. But here's, and I was, so I was enjoying the Twitter feed at that point, but here's where the Twitter party gets crashed by your parents coming home early. (laughs) Annette Gordon-Reed herself, a historian of your favorite institution, Harvard University, Mm -hmm. and a Pulitzer Prize winner for a book that she wrote about Sally Hemings, uh, that is Thomas Jefferson's concubine with whom he enslaved concubine with whom he fathered enslaved children, you would think that maybe Annette Gordon-Reed would be also perhaps a little sensitive to some of these ways, shall we say, of the consensus school historians like Wood and Ellis of minimizing the issue of slavery. Well, she said, you know, it's very likely there are many people who have not read books by Ellis and Wood. And for people who have and want to read these books, Could it be as it is with music? You've heard the music or singer, player sing that song before, but you want to hear it again. If people want to hear songs over and over, why mightn't they like to hear stories told again? To which I responded to you and actually to Annette as well on Twitter. You mean the same super racist songs (laughs) sung over and over again? Uh, yeah. And that's well, where I lost it. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. to think so little about your own discipline that you're just, you know, writing pop songs for, for the, for a mass public instead of actually trying to uncover some fundamental truths about our past and make sense of the world that we live in. Nope. It's just, you know, a little ditty that we're, we're, we're playing again and again. Uh, the idea that, that, you know, that your work is not doing harm by telling bad stories or, you know, by contrast, that your work can't do good by telling better stories. It's completely missing from from that that analysis, if you can call it that. Um, so, yeah, that that was the point where I, I, I don't I couldn't go on after that point. No, it, it was pretty much the capstone. And, you know, I think, look, I mean, if, if I've made any sense here, you know, about about what this storyline represents, this romantic emplotment of U.S. history by those we call the consensus historians. You know, that that historian, uh, uh, African-American historian, uh, Nick Gordon-Reed, who blew the cover off the Hemings uh, historical scandal, we'll call it, uh, you know, at Monticello and Thomas, that, that, that she would come on and essentially defend these clowns you know, who are writing, you know, essentially the same book over and over again. The the, the word I came up with was paychecking. Like, <laughs> hey, hey, look, Josh, Wood and Ellis are paychecking. Yeah. You know, in other words, earning uh, publishing money 
for essentially rewriting the same romantically implauded story about the Fanning fathers minimizing their blemishes, but nevertheless airbrushing the portrait to make it seem like it was ultimately model perfect, mm-hmm. you know, as uh, I think a, a, an example of what we're going to be talking about in the episode today. In other words, to take on, if you will, this story is more difficult than it might first seem, or even as we sometimes uh, may seem to suggest it is with our own uh, critique of it. Because in effect, what happens over the course of generations, you know, through the institutional training in this case of historians, you know, who come up reading the books of the deans of history, you know, just like I did in, in grad school, you know, read pieces by Gordon Wood and and his mentors and have the subject framed and implotted in that way creates ultimately what we're going to discuss today is not just a story, but an entire episteme that is a way of knowing that gets embedded in the in the very pores, you know, of, of an age such that after a time, it becomes almost invisible. That is something like the the implotment of the story becomes invisible. It just is the way the story is told. And so to see outside of it, you know, to, mm-hmm. to transcend it, one must not only imagine a differently told story, but then inevitably, you know, run up against the interests of power that are invested in the telling of stories that way. And so, you know, look, uh, Miss Reed is at Harvard, and I couldn't think of a better example, can you, of an institutional presence that stands as a kind of guardian over the telling of the story this way and uses its considerable clout over the profession right, over the training of graduate students, the sponsoring of conferences, the publishing of history books, et cetera, you know, use this considerable clout to kind of maintain that standing. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I think that the key thing here that as you you were discussing is that when what we're seeing is this entire system of knowledge, right, that, that what this does, that means when you encounter knowledge, um, you tend to, and again, as you, as you said, this is happening kind of almost invisibly. You're not necessarily cognizant of this happening, but you fit that knowledge into that system. Um, and the result is, you know, there can be disagreements. You, you were, you were, we've been talking about these disagreements. Harvard's a great example, right? There's all kinds of intellectual disagreements amongst, you know, the, the professors and the, the scholars at, at, at Harvard, but they tend to, and I don't want to be too general here, they tend to exist within that same system of knowledge, that same uh, episteme. Uh, that means that for all the disagreements, in many ways, they're still just supporting the same basic structure. Yeah, exactly. They're not they're not the type of disagreements that will call, let's say, for the overthrow yes. of that of that episteme, that system of knowledge with all its, you know, powerful interests. But assume that the disagreements can all play out fair and square, you know, within the carefully officiated you know, boundaries of the of the playing field or something. And I'll tell you, before we go into the next segment, where I'm going to let you do your thing, because you've been on some, you know, some really great uh, lines lately uh, in, in researching this, is that the thing that it 
it costs. You say, well, what difference does it make? You know, I mean, what what harm does it do? Right. You know, yeah. the, the Gordon Wood and Ellis and these guys write these books and, you know, they sort of recycle the same romantically implauded story about founding fathers and the miracle at Philadelphia and the Constitution and, and, and you know, minimize the, you know, baneful effects of slavery or something. But what different, you know, is it, you know, isn't it good to have a patriotic feel good story like that? And the answer is, well, look out your window, <laughs> take a walk downtown. Uh, you know, visit, uh, you know, uh, a, a homeless shelter, you know, stand outside your local hospital, you know, to watch, you know, the, the COVID patients come through or, you know, switch on the news to see how it's all going these days with the policing of America's streets and racial justice. I mean, we've had a front row view, you know, of the catastrophe, you know, of these systems that are so invested you know, in in power and interest and in, you know, racial profiling and uh, claims of property. I mean, you know, across the board that have created what often seems to us, at least, you know, to be nearly a failing state uh, of affairs in our life. And and the problem with the story then is it, it doesn't help at all, does it, to assist us in fixing, even addressing, let alone fixing most of those problems. Thank you for, for that uh, uh, passionate um, discussion of, of the problems of, of U.S. history and the way this stuff is told. And it's going to kind of lead into some of the stuff I want to talk about as well. Uh, we might have to circle back a little bit to, to make all the connections clear. But what I wanted to do is, is talk about, you know, a, a topic that is very important to, you know, kind of my own intellectual uh, foundations. And that's the issue of cross-cultural encounters, which uh, was a big part of my graduate training. And, you know, this kind of comes from something I read a few weeks ago or this the desire to have this discussion came from something I read a few weeks ago or maybe a month ago from a historian named, uh, historian named Bernard Cohn, who I think I mentioned in the last episode. And talking about the British in India, he says, quote, they, meaning the British, had unknowingly and unwittingly invaded and conquered not only a territory, but an epistemological space as well. The quote unquote facts of this space did not exactly correspond to those of the invaders. And so that, you know, really got me thinking about this idea of epistemology, these systems of knowledge we've been talking about, um, what Foucault called an uh, an episteme. Um, And, you know, in in the terms of of cross-cultural encounters, I think what what Bernard Cohn really helped me understand and see is that every one of these encounters is not just an encounter between individuals, not just encounters between societies, but also encounters of differing uh, epistemes. All right. And so that's what I kind of want to get into today. We're going to take a wide ranging tour of a bunch of different places and encounters and people, um, but also always circling back to this idea that what's happening here is not just, you know, this, this simple meeting of people, but there's also this struggle to understand one, one another and often a struggle to not try to understand the other, as we'll see as well. 
All right. So before we get into the, the meat of this, I do want to give us a, a working definition of an episteme, right? That's as, a, as an instructor, you should always define your terms. Um, and so an episteme, according to Foucault, uh, these are implicit rules of, for, of formation, which govern what constitutes legitimate forms of knowledge for a particular cultural period. They are the underlying codes of a culture that govern its language, its logic, its schemas of perception, its values, and its techniques. I mean, that definition goes directly back to what you were talking about, right? The, the episteme of, of American history in many ways, mm-hmm. um, you know, is this, this logic. It's this way of, of kind of constituting what's legitimate and what, what's not legitimate. And this is absolutely going to come into play as we talk <clears throat> about um, these encounters as well. All right. So before we get into that fully, I do want to set up, you know, some of the some of the challenges of, of talking and thinking about cross cultural interactions, because there's been these two extremes that uh, that have kind of reared their heads at various points in the history of uh, of representing these encounters. To be clear, on the one side is the notion of radical alterity, and this is the tendency to see differences as somehow fundamental, unchanging, or essential. So what I'm what I'm talking about here then is during the course of either an encounter or uh, <clears throat> later on, as people kind of think about and write about that encounter, there can be a tendency to uh, see the other side. And this is particularly true of European interactions, but not always. Or rather, European interactions with non-Europeans, but not always. Um, and so what we start seeing, for instance, in the, in the, the 18th century in European writing, um, this is really becomes common in the latter half of the 18th century is to understand difference in terms of type rather than circumstance, right? So rather than just saying, I'm different from you because you are here and I'm there, uh, because you live in this environment, I live in that environment, there was an increasing tendency to think of humans in terms of various types of humanity. And this kind of comes out of a lot of the biological thinking that, that's emerging, uh, you know, the ideas of taxonomy and all that sort of stuff. But, but one, one example of this is this tendency that you start seeing, and this just gets more and more uh, frequent as the century goes on, to depict an entire people in the singular. I don't know if you've ever come across this, this, this thing, but you'll see references to, quote unquote, the Tongan. You know, somebody from Tonga, uh, from Tonga is the, the, the Tongan, the Jaluf, the Mandingo, the Gujarati, the Arab. And then that's usually followed by some broad generalization that's supposed to encompass the group as a whole. And built into the notion was that these human types were like puzzles that could be solved. And then once you solved it, you'd have this kind of, you know, their essence would then become clear to you. All right. So it is, it's, it's uh, an idea that, you know, is constituted into race, certainly, as race becomes a more important way of, of seeing difference in the 19th century. But you'll also see a lot of these discussions, which are not really racialized in the way we would later see it. So let me give you an example of this. In the late 18th century... There's a traveler uh, from England named Mungo Park. Good name there, Mungo Park. Uh, and Mungo Park was traveling in, as he calls it, the uh, inner in inner Africa, he, he calls it. So bas- basically in uh, West Africa, in that kind of Senegambia region that you've been so interested in. And so I'm just going to quote a little bit from his writing, uh, because as he goes through uh, this, this area in, on his travels, he encounters different peoples of West Africa. And he says, for instance... For his readers, he wants to differentiate them all. So, for instance, he talks to the Faloops. And these are all his terms. Some of these terms accord with, you know, common uh, usage. And some are seemingly his invention or his misinterpretation. But he talks about the Faloops, who were, quote, 
of a gloomy disposition and never forgive an injury. So the Floops, as a singular, have a gloomy disposition and never forgive an injury. And they're different uh, from the active, powerful, and warlike race of the Yaloofs. And they, in turn, are different from the mild, sociable, and obliging Mandingos. And this goes on and on. He goes, he goes through all these, these different groups. What becomes pretty clear, though, as, as you know, he writes, <clears throat> is what he's really doing is deriving his entire uh, perception of these, of these groups, of these types, their essential character, from how they happen to behave towards Europeans at the moment of meeting, right? It'd be like if through after one conversation with you, I said, the thing about Chris, and I mean that in the singular to refer to all Chris's, is they tend to be six foot three or four, maybe, right? Uh, and, and kind of going through your, your characteristics and that then would sum up all of uh, all of the Chris's in the world because I- Don't forget uh, angry. Angry, yes. <laughs> Quick to anger. <laughs> Of a curious mind. All right. So, so that's, that's one thing we're going to see, right? This, this tendency to want to generalize. And th- that's, there's nothing specifically European about that. But certainly by the time you get to the 18th century, you know, under the influence of the Enlightenment, there's this increased idea that knowledge is an object which can be collected, can be stored away, and then can be used in particular ways as well. And that's reflected in a lot of these encounters of, of the 18th century. And so as, as many people pointed out, if you read the travelogues of somebody like Mungo Park and the way he talks about difference, you know, as I just described, it's extremely different from even earlier European encounters. Like read Columbus's letters, right? They're, they're so bereft of any real information about the people he encounters. Um, uh, you know, a guy we were talking about a, a while ago, uh, uh, Walter Raleigh, right? Who also writes his own travel account. Um, but the people really don't come into play that much. He doesn't describe them that much. To the extent he does describe them, it's mostly what value they might have for, for him and for uh, for England. So those kind of depictions are very different than what we're going to see in the 18th century, where now there becomes this big focus on the idea of knowledge as something that can be attained, and then knowledge is something that can be used, but also the notion that difference is, is fundamental. Human difference is fundamental. All right, so that extreme is really going to be the main way of understanding these, these encounters both, again, in their moment of occurrence, but also in their representations. The other extreme, though, is one that is, you know, I I will admit to being guilty of sometimes, and that's the emphasis on common humanity. And what I mean by that is, you know, this is emerging from like the 1960s in particular, when scholarship began to sympathize more with the plight of the colonized, when uh, you see more critical writing about, you know, kind of these earlier tropes of culture and encounter of race and these sorts of things. But the idea that we are all fundamentally the same uh, can veer a little too close to the old, you know, I don't see color chestnut, that, that idea, right? It's like, well, no, you probably should see color because color is pretty fundamental to how people experience, experience the world. You don't have to, you know, put all these implications on color, but, but, you know, it's important to understand that humans do see things differently, do think about things differently, do experience the world differently as well. So well, particularly yeah. when color becomes weaponized exactly. in the Atlantic yes. world, you know, for in, enslavement and all kinds of other nefarious purposes, right? Right. Uh, not seeing color is sort of akin to, you know, the minimizing, you know, of, of slavery in the worldview of the founding fathers or something. Mm-hmm. They didn't see color either. You know, they that's, were just that's right. yeah. men of vision. Yep. <laughs> So I, I think it comes from the kind of the same place that the intent is to be kind of sympathetic 
the intent is to, to kind of signal that you are not like these other people who only see color, who only see difference. But in many ways, you're having uh, an nefarious effect in, in, in its own right. And so um, my grad school advisor, uh, Adam McCune, uh, he would get really frustrated, remember, by the fact that as world history became less or at least attempted to become less Eurocentric, that often just meant arguing that actually non-Europeans were just like Europeans. Right. So that the new fair minded way to think of it is, no, no, no. You know, we don't need to just focus on Europeans. We can focus on other peoples now. But we're then going to depict those peoples as if, well, they're just like Europeans. Like this happens with China all the time. But no, no. Every, China, co every country has its Winston Churchill. There you go. And so, you know, you're still creating these, these sets of norms and you're still, you know, essentially um, you're judging societies based on how close they come to those norms. And while there might have been, you know, a, a better sense that, well, yeah, the Chinese are doing complex stuff, I guess, in the 18th century. They're doing things akin to what Europeans are doing. Um, there still is that, that idea that you're, you're still seeing them from a perspective. Right. You're still seeing them from within an episteme, which sees these things as good and these things as not good. These things as progressive. These things as not progressive. Um, the uh, the anthropologist Marshall Solomons had a, a good line about this, which kind of gets at, you know, a lot of what I was just saying. He says uh, the irony of well-meaning post-colonial criticism is that by working off an ethnocentric sense of what it means to restore the people's dignity, it completes the work of colonialism by intellectually expunging their culture. At the same time, deprived of their own motives and values, the people lose their agency along with their history. Right? To me, that's a, a very powerful point because it gets at this, this idea that, you know, it's, it's, it's useful to try to think about people not just as objects of, you know, my knowledge project, but as, as peoples who see the world, who think about the world, who experience the world in different ways. Um, and that's what Solons is trying to get at, that, you know, while well-meaning, What's what's happened in a lot of this post-colonial criticism, and by the way, Solons is not opposed to post-colonial criticism, just the way that it's played out. Um, we're not we're, we're reducing people in ways that are not particularly beneficial to them. So maybe then the, the question we want to ask is because uh, you know again that 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 idea of common humanity. It's 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 I like the idea. I often like to stress you know moments in history where you can kind of see, oh yeah, all these people all around the world are reacting to similar things in similar ways. You know, that that is inspiring in some ways, but it also can have the effect that, that I was just I was just talking about. In, in particular, I think there was a tendency amongst scholars to understand psychologically or to, to think of humans psychologically as all the same. Well, you know, it occurs to me, Josh, uh, what you're saying is very interesting. What what, uh, you know, Salins was on about, too. And, you know, if we look, if we take a long time frame, uh, the history of, you know, European Empire or something, and we see the Mungo Parks you know, early in that imperial phase, maybe. And then, you know, we see at the end of it, maybe after decolonization or something, we see, you know, critics of imperialism mm -hmm. that if those two poles of the imperial history, you know, the early and the, the after the, you know, the, the sort of apologists and the critics, if they're working within the same episteme, you know, of the West, let's say yeah. in the Western tradition, mm -hmm. That even though they have different conclusions about the advisability of the imperial project or something or the treatment of colonial, you know, the, the colonized native peoples, um, because they're working within that same episteme, they end up being rather closer together in certain viewpoints, I guess, or presumptions or assumptions about those 
native peoples than than they might have might have realized. In other words, that that they're 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 limited in some ways by that episteme that still sees them using a kind of reductionist logic to understand these uh, these non-Western people. No, I think that's that's actually that's that's very true, and I think the 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 thing that that ties those together is the notion that it's the job of essentially Western academics to represent non-Western peoples, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you can do that in a way that's more sympathetic to them or less sympathetic to them, but it still does assume that kind of privilege of of representation. Now, I will also say that you know I've been reading a lot of anthropology lately and and thinking about this stuff. The anthropologists, you know, you talk about hist- histor- historians arguing. The anthropo- anthropologists' arguments during this this long era of post nineteen sixties, they try to come to terms with what their discipline was, and it and and, and you know was and and was becoming. Um, they're brutal, right? These are people who are doing a, a kind of soul searching, actually, that I wish more historians would do, because a lot of it comes down to, well, should we even be doing this? Like, what what does it mean to engage in field work and going into these societies as a stranger and seeking to understand them? And other people saying, you know, Marshall Solomons, for instance, said, no, no, no. You know, my field work, I've spent 30 years amongst, you know, the various uh, peoples of Polynesia, you know, and so I have insight into, into these people. It's, you know, it's it's a real it's a real struggle. And there's there's something inspiring about it in the sense that there is some real soul searching. But I think in the end, you often come to that same place, which is that, you know, you can't represent them right, but I can represent them right, which is still, <laughs> you know, a perspective that that is a little uncomfortable, we'll just say. Yeah, and, and the fact that you and I come from maybe different ideological perspectives, we're still part of the maybe the enduring episteme of the West or something. Yes. It reminds modernity. me of a river. I, I would say it's modernity more, more than the West. You, know, okay. you come out of this kind of modern okay. episteme okay, sure. of, of modernity, right? Where modernity. Yeah. You know, there's a certain idea of what knowledge is and how it's acquired, and and that that idea then is used as a um, comparison point with other forms of knowledge. And if other forms of knowledge don't meet with the requirements of that, you know, kind of modern knowledge, uh, objectivity, for instance, as, as a, a key pillar, um, mm-hmm. then then it's seen as something else. It's myth. Um, it is tradition, but it's not really knowledge in the sense of, of real historical, real scholarly knowledge. Right. And so that's exactly uh, what the epistemes are supposed to do. They, they determine what's legitimate and what's not legitimate. And so often what's not legitimate is going to be the ways of thinking of non-European people, right? Of people co- not coming out of, of Europe, mm-hmm. the United States and, you know, these other uh, countries of that sort. So, you know, maybe then the question we can, we can, I can, we can ask, and this is maybe is not a great answer to this question, but I'm going to, I want to take a shot at it. What do all humans share though? Is there something we all share? You know, how do we, how do we square that circle of radical alterity on the one hand, common humanity on the other? And what I came up with, and you can you know, react to this as uh, you see fit, but what all humans share in common is that we make use of the tools we have to make sense of the world we encounter. Uh, that's the best I could come up with, that what we're all doing is, you know, as we grow up, as we're, as we're brought up within these epistemological systems, those systems give us certain tools, and then we're expected to make use of those tools to encounter the world, right? In the case of these cross-cultural encounters, then, what you're trying to do is use the tools you have to make sense of these other people who don't use the same tools as you do. Now, the I like that yeah. a lot. It makes me, it makes me think about our friend, you know, Patrick Manning, Yeah, you know, and, and his look at the evolution of a human system, you know, and, and looking at, uh, you know, what he describes as syntactic language, because right. 
if there's a kind of common denominator here, a common thread or something across these ages and cultures and such, you know, I, I imagine that you're right. It would be one of them, this idea of tool making, particularly as it's manifest through uh, our species, uh, rather singular ability for, for syntactic language. Mm -hmm. In other words, the, the epistemes that we're talking about, these systems of knowledge get encoded with the ways we think through language. Yes. And just as there are really only a fairly limited number of implotments for a kind of story form, you know, romantic, comedic, tragic, satirical are, are four that, that you know, uh, uh, literary critics often use. I, I would say in the same way, our epistemes limit our range of understandings, yes. you know, through the application of these these sort of, uh, you know, these, these lexicons of, of, uh, of language and such. Yes. And, and no, I, I, and I think your, your emphasis on language is really important. I actually have some examples where we can get into that. Um, you know, one, one of the examples I like using a lot because it, it does get across, you know, some of the limitations of, of just translation, you know, cause one of the things that Bernard Cohn says, you know, as he's talking about epistemological spaces and the conquest of epistemological space is that, the way Europeans generally dealt with with encountering a new uh, episteme, you know, in, in these faraway places is they sought to translate that space into their own. Right. They sought to take this thing which was different and translate it into something that was understandable. And the idea was you could, you know, even if they're, though they're different, you can find correspondence between this and that. Right. And I, I always think about, you know, that when when Europeans first come to the Western Hemisphere, um, it's pretty common for for indigenous groups at least I've seen references to this in uh, in Mesoamerica and in uh, in North America. That a, a lot of times when um, indigenous people first encounter horses, they simply use the term deer. The, the term they use for deer is what they use to describe a horse, right? And so when you know they talk about horses, they're using the term essentially deer. Now, if you just translate that, right? If they were right, if this was a written language, and you're just translating their correspondence and they keep talking about deer. You would say, look at these people. They don't understand the difference between a deer and a horse. But what they're really doing is just trying to take something unfamiliar and make it familiar. And the most familiar thing they have is, is a deer, right? And so, you know, what we should be sensitive to is, is that process. Now, this stuff is not always literal. And we got to be careful about just taking words from one language, translating them into another language. I don't know if everybody's done that game where you go to Google Translate and you translate something into like... Japanese and you translate it back into English and see how it turns out. It's a fun game if you've never tried that. But I think there's a little bit of that happening in these kind of epistemological translations. Maybe the, the better example, though, is what happens in a lot of, of Polynesia and a lot of the Pacific as European exploration really picks up in the 18th century. Um, and that's where you see this, um, this trope begin to emerge, and it particularly surrounds... Um, uh, you know, the travels of, of, of Captain Cook. He's famously killed in Hawaii. Um, and it becomes very common to, to understand that whole episode in Hawaii as uh, Cook having been seen as a god and then, and then killed. Right? So there's this kind of, uh, as Marshall Solomons actually calls it, uh, the apotheosis of Captain Cook, right? That he's kind of raised to the level of, of, of a god. Um, and so there's, you know, I was talked about debates in anthropology. There's huge debates around in anthropology around this issue of of the deification of Captain Cook, 
with one side saying, well, you know, there's reasons why they might have actually think thought of him as a god. Another side says, no, you're an idiot. Europeans always think uh, that they're gods when they meet other, you know, quote unquote, primitive people. And this goes back and forth, back and forth. But I think maybe the, the solution to this, this issue is, is something that um, uh, a guy really like Herb uh, Kawanui uh, Kane, who's a, a, a Hawaiian scholar, artist, historian, you know, and you can give him a bunch of different labels, but he says about this issue of deification, he says, one cultural fact is the absence in the Polynesian language of equivalents for such Western religious terms as divine, God, adoration, holy, sacrifice, supernatural, and religion. Polynesians of 1778, the year that Cook was killed, uh, having no vision of the supernatural as a separate sphere from the natural universe, could not have seen Cook as a god. To Westerners, God means a supernatural being, but the term that's translated to mean God is, is a Polynesian term, Akua, which shows up basically all around uh, Polynesia, everywhere from New Zealand uh, in, the, in the south to Hawaii uh, to um, uh, Rapa Nui or Easter Island. You see that same term. Uh, uh, Kane says, an Akua is a being of nature, one of immense power, which may be an invisible spirit or a living person. So as another scholar says, an Akua can be a man. Uh, uh, an Akua can uh, be a god who's a, a kind of a spirit that you can't see. Uh, you know, things in nature can be Akua. All kinds of things are given this kind of, you know, this kind of spirit, uh, which gives them certain powers and certain certain abilities. But it doesn't necessarily mean God. And when we take that term God, a very loaded term, and apply it to, you know, these, these, uh, these encounters, it doesn't help us understand anything. Right. What it does is it applies one epistemology upon another. And in the process, it erases this other way of seeing things. All right. So circling back a little bit, um, basically, when we think of a cross-cultural encounter, then we want to understand it as an encounter between epistemes that differ to a greater or lesser extent. Historically, that means that those who took part in encounters generally needed to make some allowances for those differences. You need to come to some kind of you know, middle ground where one raised in a certain episteme can understand somebody from a different episteme. Uh, where encounters were most common, what tends to happen is those ep epistemological differences tend to narrow. So for instance, in the Indian Ocean, you know, a place where there are, you know, encounters happening across long distances for literally centuries and centuries. This is a, a you know, an ocean that stretches 5,000 miles across. It includes massively diverse cultures and different languages and different peoples. Um, as a result of these centuries and centuries of trade, it becomes very possible for people from one end of the system to encounter, to make sense of, to trade with, to engage with people on the other end of the system. And if you, you know, travel the Indian Ocean of the early modern period, you know, you can go to a place like Malacca and you can see, you know, there's like 65 different languages being spoken there, uh, all these different communities, but it basically works. And that's because through the, those, those generations and generations of encounters, the epistemological space has become close enough to make things work. And then on the other hand, you have something like the Columbian encounter, all right? Uh, the Columbian encounter, obviously, um, in 1492, involves people who have no prior history, whose uh, epistemes are fundamentally different. And the result is, you know, what, what I've sometimes called a pristine encounter, an encounter between people who had no prior knowledge of each other and not even no prior knowledge, but no sense even that there might be another people out there. The problem with this encounter for ourselves as scholars, as people trying to understand this, 
is that our our guide to this encounter is is Columbus. And as I said earlier, Columbus has no interest in actually um, describing people in any real ethnological sense. He's not really that interested, to be clear. Um, the problem, though, comes from the fact that with these encounters, you also get the representation of the encounter. And the repre representation of the encounter, what it does is imposes one epistemological understanding on, on the other. Now, again, this is not purely a European thing. You can read, you know, um, accounts of al-Bakri in West Africa. Al-Bakri didn't actually go to West Africa, but he collected a bunch of information about it. And al-Bakri's descriptions of West Africa are not particularly uh, rich, we'll just say, in kind of discussions of the people. Um, al-Bakri is a, uh, a Spanish Muslim who is, uh, you know, getting these reports from, from Muslim traders who are crossing the Sahara. And as merchants, you know, they're going to be most interested in things having to do with trade. They're also Muslims, though, so they're interested in, you know, the religion of, of the people they encounter, which was beginning to be more and more uh, Muslims in, in the area. But that's what you get out of it, right? And so al-Bakri's account is not this kind of uh, broad uh, description of West African peoples. It's instead a very narrow uh, depiction. Um, and so you can see, you know, Ibn Battuta's depiction of the Mongols um, in, the, in the 13th century, um, I do want to just quote real quickly Abu Fazl's account of Europeans, because we usually don't get representations of Europeans, right? Our, our sources are so full of European representations of others. But I think it's important to see that we do have that happening in both directions, right? People are trying to understand Europeans just as Europeans are trying to understand them. And so here's just a, a little bit of Abu Fazl. And Abu Fazl, by the way, if you don't know, he was kind of the hype man for Akbar, uh, the Mughal emperor. And he was the author of this great work called the Akbar Nama, which is this, this account of, of Akbar's life, uh, which, again, it, it's it's you know propaganda, but it's also a, a brilliant uh, work that includes um, some some amazing writing. So he's talking about um, Akbar encountering Portuguese. He says Akbar received each of them with special favor and made inquiries about the wonders of Portugal and the manners and customs of Europe. It seemed as if he did this from a desire of knowledge for his sacred heart is a storehouse of spiritual and physical sciences. Remember, I said he was a hype man, so there you go. But his soul wished that these inquiries might be a means of civilizing this savage race, right? So I just like that because we so often see that kind of perspective from the Europeans, you know, uh, encountering people and instantly summing them up as one thing or another. And it's a reminder that that's happening in the other direction, but in a lot of the encounters we have, including that Colombian encounter, including the Polynesian and Pacific encounters, mm -hmm. we don't get that other perspective, right? And the result is we get this one-sided viewpoint, which then creates our knowledge about, about the people on both sides of the encounter, right? Yeah, I like that a lot. All right, so let me, let me just give some other examples of these kind of epistemological um, um, collisions, we'll just call them, um, and the way in which misunderstandings can happen. Um, and, and maybe we can get to some of the ways we can get around this. So I'll go back to India now, uh, and we will get to the Pacific in a, in a bit. Um, but in India, in the, in the early 17th century, it's when the English are first kind of setting up shop in, in parts of Western India. And in 1616, the English uh, East India Company sent a representative named Thomas Rowe to the court of the Mughal Emperor Jahangir. Uh, and Thomas Rowe uh, stayed at the court for a number of years he, uh, his, his job was to try to get in good with Jahangir so the English would have an advantage 
in trade. As Bernard Cohn describes it, uh, there was many misunderstandings that resulted from this. Thomas Rowe hated it there. He hated John Gear. He hated being at this court. He constantly complained. Uh, but here's, here's Bernard Cohn. He says, Rowe interpreted the court ritual of the Mughals in which he was required to participate as a sign of debasement. Now, he thought he was being humiliated by this rather than an act of incorporation in a substantive fashion, which made him a companion of the ruler. So he was being included in this in a way that honored him, but he could only see it as this debasement. Relations between persons, groups, and between ruler and ruled were constituted differently in Europe and India. The British in 17th, 17th century India operated on the idea that everything and everyone had a price, right? This is emergent capitalism. This is a joint stock company, the representative of a joint stock company who's coming to India with his own views of what value is. And as a representative of a joint stock company uh, in which the whole goal is to earn profits, he could only see his world that he was encountering. The tools he had to, to understand the world he was encountering was the tool of emergent capitalism, right? But that's not how the situation worked in India. So uh, to continue on with, with Bernard Cohn, he says, the presence through which relationships were constituted were seen as a form of exchange to which a quantitative value could be attached and which could be translated into a price. That's how uh, Rowe saw it. Hence, the cloth, which was the staple of the trade, was seen as a utilitarian object whose value was set in a market. They never seemed to realize, and they being the British now, that certain kinds of cloth and clothes, jewels, arms, and animals had values that were established in terms of a market-determined price, but were objects in a culturally constructed system by which authority and social relations were literally constituted and transmitted. So it just uh, frustrated people like Roe to no end that the Indians didn't understand value. They didn't understand price. They were engaged in what they would call irrational behavior, maybe. They were engaged in uh, behavior that marked them as uncivilized. And the Europeans don't really throw that around that much in the 17th century, but, but eventually they will get there. And what he didn't understand is that, you know, in the court, in the case of this Mughal court, they were engaged in a set of, you know, we can call them rituals if you want. They were involved in a set of, of kind of conversations, of rituals, of traditions that held the society together, that held the power structure together. But Roe could only see it in terms of, um, of, of prices and therefore refused to really understand what he was seeing. Um, to get to the Pacific, though, we see lots of examples of this where Europeans just cannot understand the perspective of Polynesians. Um, and so in 1793, uh, a, uh, a, a Maori uh, chief named Tukitahua was taken against his will uh, from the North Island of what we now call New Zealand, and it was brought to the Australian penal colony of Norfolk Island. And his, he was taken in order to teach weaving to prisoners. This is how ridiculous this whole process is. He's kidnapped, so he's brought to a penal colony to teach weaving to prisoners. And while he was there, he produced a map for the governor of New South Wales. Now, the whole way this process plays out, I'm not sure of. But he draws this map in the dirt, with his, basically with his foot. And uh, whoever sees it is interested in it and asks him to draw a full map for the governor of New South Wales in Australia. Um, and the map doesn't really conform with how Europeans understood map, mapping. So let me now quote again uh, from an ethnographer of the early 20th century, Johannes Anderson. He points out that, quote, on this map, two places would probably be shown on a sketch as close together if the journey between them could be made quickly or far apart if the journey were difficult or occupied a lengthy space of time. 
Again, a good harbor will be shown larger than a poor one. Their relative importance rather than their relative size being indicated. All right. So he's making a map. The map conveys all sorts of information for Tahua, but for Europeans seeing the map, it just seemed like gibberish. It didn't actually conform with the reality in their mind. It wasn't objective, right? It didn't include, you know, measurements. Uh, it wasn't a scale. And yet for Tahua and for uh, the, the Maori, this was a map that described their world in, in a fundamental way. It was useful to them in a way the Europeans couldn't see. As the Maori historian Maddie Williams says, what is, imp what is important to take from this example is that perceptions of space such as that of Tahua are not unsophisticated. They are just alien to European understandings. The measuring sticks and priorities are simply different. When this is taken into account, Maori and Polynesian worlds are easier to understand. And to me, that's the, that's the, the fundamental issue we need to understand is that when we see these cross-cultural encounters, when we see um, you know, other people only in terms of our own epistemological understandings, our own, our own epistemes, we can't possibly make sense of the world we encounter. It's going to require always some movement on the part of those doing the representation. If there has to be represent, representation done, it's incumbent upon us as historians, as scholars, as, as anthropologists, as whoever, to do our best to try to take into account not just how we want the world to be, but how those who are being represented understand their world as well. And kind of built into this is, is an idea that I think is, is really important to think about as well. And, and that is that in any kind of historical encounter, I think it's really important because it's something that's often ignored to assume that all those taking part in the encounter are competent actors. Right? We sometimes use the word rational actors, but rational also kind of imposes this very modern epistemological idea upon the situation. The idea that humans are rational is itself a, con a construct of the post-enlightenment period, right? And so I like the idea of, a, of seeing people as competent actors, not that they're doing things that we approve of or don't approve of, but that in making the decisions in understanding their world in a particular way, they're doing so in a way that makes sense within their own epistemological view. And too often what's happened in that is that Europeans, as, as the ones who represent simply pave over that, uh, that episteme, refuse to understand it. And in the end, it has real consequences. So let me just end with one last story that kind of gets across a lot of this. All right, so there's this really interesting uh, year in the history of Pacific encounters, 1767. In that year, the island of Tahiti is encountered twice, right? It's quote unquote discovered on two different occasions, months apart. Um, many scholars see the, the uh, quote-unquote discovery of Tahiti as the beginnings of true Pacific exploration. This kind of sets uh, in motion this more and more concerted attempt to travel the Pacific and to find other societies living on what were once seen as isolated islands. So the first encounter with Tahiti is uh, a British ship known as the HMS Dolphin. And the Dolphin arrives in Tahiti early in uh, 1767. And you know, it's hard to say what happens, but what seems to be happening is the Tahitians, you know, by this point, don't really have um, a lot of interactions with people outside. Right? By, the, by the 18th century, Polynesian seafaring has really slowed down. There still is travel over distances, but not as long a distances as there once were. It's become very uncommon by this point to see the large ocean going uh, canoes being, being used any longer. 
Um, and so again, there's island to island uh, uh, travel, but not across the distances that had once defined Polynesian seafaring. So as far as we know, then Tahitians were not particularly well versed in encounters with people who are vastly different than them. So what seems to happen is they first encounter the, the, the Englishman on the dolphin um, in these kind of traditional ways. Right. And they, you know, they didn't really want them there. It seems there was some hostility and that what happens over the first four days in which the dolphin is, is, uh, is off the coast of Tahiti uh, and, and, you know, you have English coming ashore is this escalating conflict with the Tahitians try one thing. It doesn't seem to get rid of the English. So they try something else, which doesn't work. So they try something else. And eventually four days in uh, there is a massive attempt at a raid on the dolphin. Right. It's done at night in secret, uh, but it, they're, they're spotted and the British actually end up firing their big guns at the Tahitian raiding party. And, you know, in the in the logs of the captain, he says, you know, I didn't want to do this. I really tried to, to stop it. That was uh, that was I, sort I of like the founding fathers right. not being terribly proud of slavery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He didn't. He was he was he was ashamed of it. Yeah. Um, so so violence breaks out in a way that, it you know, does seem. The British are, are very, uh, uh, will use violence very frequently in these encounters, but it does seem like the captain, you know, tried his best at least. Well, I'll give him a little bit of, a, of benefit of the doubt to keep violence from occurring. After that, that moment of violence, though, things start to change. The Tahitians become more willing to trade. Um, markets are not really a thing on Tahiti at this time, as far as we could tell. Uh, but most importantly, we see the implementation of, of prostitution, Right. So the trading of Tahitian women for European goods. And the captain complains that everything of value in the ship was getting torn up. All the nails were being pulled out of the planks, all because uh, the, uh, the sailors and some of the officers, in fact, wanted uh, access to these t- Tahitian women. So that's something that, as far as we can tell, there's no real history of, um, no history of, of prostitution in Polynesia as a whole. Markets, although trade does happen, markets are also not really a thing. But what becomes pretty apparent is the Tahitians figure this stuff out very quickly. They figure out the way that price works. And when they realize the value that Europeans place on certain things, including Tahitian women, they keep raising the prices on them. Okay, so that's the first part of the story. After nine days, the English leave. Um, and the whole experience has been pretty confusing for them. But they're pretty happy with it by the end, for, for maybe reasons you can imagine. Um, a few months later, a French ship shows up, a French fleet rather shows up, uh, captained by, by a guy named Bougainvillea. And Bougainvillea is going to really be the progenitor of the entire, you know, Polynesian myth, you know, kind of the, the idealization of, of Polynesia. Um, you know, famously, Gauguin uh, is going to spend time in Tahiti. Uh, uh, Melville, Herman Melville, also has a sojourn in Tahiti. And really the reason why people like that are going to travel there is because of the journals and books and, and writings of Bougainvillea and then uh, one of his officers as well. Because when they arrive at Tahiti, what they experience right away is, oh, these Tahitians love to trade. Oh, and they they will uh, they'll 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 uh, they'll um, engage in in prostitution, right? And so all these horny men who've been at sea for months and months find this to be pretty amazing. And they're coming from these societies that are pretty buttoned up. And so seeing the sexual promiscuity, the willingness to trade, the kindness of the Tahitians now becomes uh, their vision of what Tahiti was. But as, as, as a historian named I.C. Campbell has pointed out, what's actually happening here is the Tahitians, although they have the tools that I talked about, 
they, uh, you know, are, are brought up in a culture and an episteme, which is very particular. What they had realized after that, that first encounter is that when people show up, this is what they want. And they therefore change their culture of cultural contact to meet the needs of these new, these new arrivals. Right. So what that shows us is on the one hand, the power of the tools we have, but also that we should always assume that any person, including ourselves, can and should be willing to burst out of our episteme. episteme. So, so what this kind of shows us is that, you know, even in a society that, that Europeans present as being so bound in culture and tradition, improvisation was possible. And therefore, we can assume that improvisation is always an option for us, even those of us who live in what seems to be an unbreakable episteme, there are ways out. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not suggesting that the Titian response to European uh, arrival was good or bad. But what it does represent is them uh, assessing the situation as competent actors, seeing what they can get away with and seeing what they can't get away with. And then uh, when they experience this thing again, they have this entirely new way of thinking about those encounters as well. What's interesting is, for as much as Polynesians, uh, you know, kind of figure this out, we see the same thing happening in Hawaii at a later point as well. Uh, you know, they figure out markets, they figure out prostitution. They don't engage in these behaviors absent Europeans. They only do these things when Europeans show up. And so we get this, this amazing example where they are adapting to their situations without fundamentally changing their culture in, in other ways. Um, and then let me just add, end with, with this. Uh, this is uh, Herb Kawanui Kane again, uh, giving us some wisdom to take us out of this, this section on. Kane says, as an artist, I find that a depiction of an event in Pacific history requires more than painstaking accuracy of settings and details. One must also try to see the world of the participants through their eyes. Otherwise, human figures will seem lifeless on the canvas or as we often see in Hollywood historical spectaculars, as modern people in period dress. Polynesian and European premises, logic and conclusions about the universe and humanity's situation, uh, and humanity's situation stationed in it, were worlds apart. And it's okay to understand that. Uh, it's okay to recognize that while still understanding that ultimately as humans, we all have this ability to improvise, all have this ability to uh, understand our world in our own fashion. Yeah, well, there's a lot there, Josh, you know, because what you're doing is, you know, finding these sort of cross-cultural moments, you know, of, of contact um, you know, spanning the globe from uh, Polynesia to uh, South Asia and the Americas. And, you know, what that suggests is, in, in, particularly in this, this modern era, you know, from the early modern to what we usually call the, the modern or contemporary context, uh, a period of what, 400, 500 years, mm -hmm. that the process of knowledge gathering, you know, that these uh, European empires engaged in, you know, would be the British or the French or the Spanish or later even the United States, uh, were uh, projects of knowledge gathering that were always connected to the fundamental systems of power and particularly material interest, you know, that, that these entities represented. So that 
I'm sure any one of the the figures you mentioned, you know, these these emissaries like the the man I can't I can't think of his name right now who was sent by the British to, yeah. to India, Thomas Rowe, yeah, Thomas Rowe, um, you know, and and the uh, the British uh, East India Company that 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 he's coming in uh, to learn ostensibly, you know, about the the Mughal dynasts, but. At the same time, he's very much uh, himself a product of a certain episteme with its own, not only formulations of what counts as knowledge or not, but also the power, the expression of power that backs that up. In other words, these ideas are never just free. You know, Thomas Jefferson writing in the Declaration of Independence about all men being created equal. Yeah, we want to treat that like it's this free form idea that isn't connected to time or place, mm-hmm. some universal truth or something. But the fact is that even as Jefferson wrote those words, you know, or as Thomas Rowe sat at the Mughal court or something, you know, they're very much vested in those systems of power that give those ideas very specific application and meaning. Right. You know, so, you know, Jefferson returns to Monticello. Where, you know, an, an enslaved labor um, uh, plantation, as we call them, you know, that that his very status as a Virginia gentry, as a man given over in the Enlightenment age to great study and, a you know, building a library, uh, you know, that kind of Enlightenment ideal of, of knowledge for its own sake is really never quite that, is it? It's always uh, a kind of instrument of power. I mean, you know, Foucault was so great, right, at talking about how, you know, knowledge was always connected to, you know, the uses of power. Yes. Uh, And so these epistemes are that, you know, because, you know, we can talk about the need to to be self-aware in an episteme, you know, to transcend these, these boundaried knowledge systems. But, you know, like Annette Gordon-Reed representing Harvard, you know, kind of giving a pass to Gordon Wood, who was a Harvard PhD and a student of a, you know, a much uh, celebrated Harvard historian, Bernard Balin, you know, that, that there's always that tempering effect within the episteme, you know, yes. that ideas are only as free as those bounded systems of power kind of allow them to be. Yeah, I, I, that's a great point. And I like the linking of, of Roe and, and Jefferson is, is really important because, you know, what both of them have in common, I guess this is kind of this, this modern kind of European, and to, uh, Roe is very much at the, at the early, early period of, of the emergence of modernity, certainly. But what they both have in common is they take with them these ideas. And that's, you know, for Roe, that's value. Right? To, to him, value has an innate meaning, right? And that's what he can't understand when, he, when he's in India, that obviously value means this and everything has a price, but they don't understand that. What's wrong with them, right? And the problem is he has this unquestioning idea that this thing called value or price is somehow innate. It's somehow just a basic fundamental building block of his society. Same thing with, with Jefferson, I guess, in a different way. But, you know, when he says equality, when he talks about freedom, when he talks about liberty, you know, he's assuming that this is just a thing that we all know what that is, right? That that these things are, are kind of fundamental and universal. Um, but when you start with those assumptions, you're, uh, you're again, you're kind of uh, imposing your own epistemological system upon all those who then read your work. Because the important thing that I don't think I got across quite enough 
is it's not just that the encounters themselves are important, but what happens after, which is that all these encounters get represented. And because of, of the emergence of European power in the 19th century, they all get represented uh, in ways that become foundational for our entire system of learning, our, our university system, as you're talking about, you know, Bernard Balin, you know, begetting Gordon Wood and this sort of stuff, that they're using these systems of, of knowledge or using this knowledge itself, which has been collected, has been stored, has been organized by people engaged in essentially imperial projects, right? And whether that's the internal col colonialism of, of the United States or the external colonialism of the British in Polynesia or, or India or, or wherever else, you know, what we need to understand is that so much of our knowledge um, is complicit, right, in these entire systems, uh, in these entire systems of power. And the more that we just kind of unthinkingly present ideas as assumed, when we just say liberty, and liberty is supposed to just have meaning to our students, right, the more we're just kind of giving in to these systems that were constructed in periods of immense power differentials and, and periods as well where who could represent and who was represented was very fixed in place, right? Which is why I, I read you that one depiction of, of the Portuguese by Abu Fassel, because it is so rare to see those depictions. It's always going the other direction. And we need to be really attuned to that, I think, as, as, as scholars. Yeah, we do. In fact, we, uh, <laughs> you know, we came across a quote from a historian we like, contemporary historian, Marcus Redeker mm -hmm. from uh, University of Pittsburgh. Yeah. And Redeker is uh, now for uh, quite a number of years written on uh, slavery and the slave trade and, and various aspects of the Atlantic world. And we saw a, a tweet Marcus had posted the other day where he said uh, there was a, a uh, a statement by Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the French existential philosopher, that he liked a lot. And he was paraphrasing it. And he said uh, from Sartre that you're not, you're not an intellectual if you stay within your, quote, field of expertise. You are merely a technician hmm. of knowledge. Yeah. All genuine intellectuals tear down the enclosures of the human mind. And I think we both thought that that spoke to this limiting factor, you know, of the episteme. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a powerful idea. And you know, I was thinking about this in various contexts, but, you know, I think what it's a reminder of is that we can't just be compilers, containers and disseminators of knowledge, right? We also have to be willing to kind of be self aware enough, right? To be self reflective mm -hmm. enough to look at the source of that knowledge, to understand how it came to be. Um, so we don't keep passing along these, these complicit ideas, and these systems of, of, of yeah, epistemological I, power, right? That's that's such a good point. In fact, I, I would say there was the single worst conceit, say, of the consensus school of U.S. history was this idea that, you know, the Gordon Woods and the Balins and these people, that what they were doing, you know, they, they, they were presenting the history yes. as a kind of objective fact almost you know? like a, a passive thing almost as if you know yeah they've gained access to this thing and now they can present it to you the lucky right. of, of yeah yeah it was through their technical virtuosity that they could bring this kind of pristine historical uh story you know to a to a, a larger audience of students or scholars or whomever uh and that to the extent that they had you know invested that story with their own Implotment or ideology was 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 minimal. They they really were, you know, just the stewards of the the truth of history or something. And I think, 
you know, most disciplines, I always say history has been a little late to the party in that sense, because most disciplines went into their postmodernist faith, even where you were talking about the anthropologists yeah, earlier, right. you know, who were hugely self-critical of their own methodologies. You know, really, uh, historians, U U.S. historians in particular, really didn't, haven't, still, I should say, in, in the present, really haven't had that moment yet. No, absolutely not. I mean, we've had individuals have had moments, right? But not the field mm -hmm. itself has not really mm -hmm. come to terms with this stuff. Exactly. In any considered exactly. way. Well, right. let, let me take us out here with, with one last quote. This comes from a historian uh, of Polynesia, of New Zealand particularly, uh, who herself is uh, is Maori. And I, I referenced her earlier. This is Maddie Williams. Um, she is the author of a, a great short text called just called Polynesia. Uh, I think it's 900 to 1600. Uh, less than 100 pages, but a great introduction to a lot of of ideas about the, the, the Maori in particular, but um, kind of that broader Southern Polynesia. And she says in the conclusion to her book, in this tradition, uh, Tane ascended to the heavens to retrieve the three baskets of knowledge. Tane was required to outsmart those standing in his way to get them. These baskets are uh, sacred knowledge, ancestral knowledge, and knowledge in front of us. Uh, those are all translations of, of Polynesian terms. These baskets are thought to never be full, and thus there is always room for further knowledge. The baskets should not be separated, and all three forms of knowledge are essential. Knowledge is not achieved without challenge and question. And just as Tane ascended the heavens, we must challenge ourselves in the knowledge we hold, continually seeking to expand our understanding. We must also not discount any form of knowledge, since to seek merely one form is to not appreciate the nature of knowledge. This has been History Against the Grain, episode 50, and we'll do this again in two weeks. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into it.